say uh, the problems of creditors and debtors at the microfinance level for the poorest of the poor in developing countries are not in some sense totally different from the problems generated by the banking sector in the U.S. economy, which led to the massive 2008 crash that our country experienced. Uh, what are those similarities? Well, first of all, both of them have been subjected to the, the accusation of, of balloon effects or other forms of bubbles, which led to artificial perceptions about what the nature of <coughs> the future prospects of the economy would be. Um, the creditworthiness of the borrowers were ignored in both cases. Subprime loans <coughs> within the housing market in the United States and poor people around the world led to uh, loans going to people who didn't necessarily have the ability to pay them back, certainly at the terms in which they were established. And third, there was um, excess supply of loans. Um, oddly enough, the United States government is not, sorry, the United States economy right now, just like many parts of the world economy, is not short of capital or short of cash. The problem is that the markets are inefficient in allocating that cash. And so banking institutions or foundations that create credit lines for the poor uh, take deposits for whoever deposits, right? So uh, once they have it, they're committed to paying out an interest rate, which means that they're also committed to lending it out at least one set of loans per dollar per dollar at a spread of interest rates of one to three to four points to cover administrative costs, risk of non-payment of the loan, and inflation. So oddly enough, even though the um, market for microloans has you know, grown by leaps and bounds, but still is a tiny percentage of the world economy, uh, it says here that uh, internationally, I think it was $44 billion in microloans uh, to 86 million poor borrowers or, you know, impoverished was the exact word. Uh, $86 million sounds like a lot of money, but, you know, that's a couple of hours in the war in Iraq. Or put differently, sorry, $44 million. Um, $44 billion, I, I take that back, sorry. Uh, $44 billion is actually uh, 22 weeks in Iraq. Um, but 86 million people out of 3 billion poor out of 8 million is a small percentage. And even with multiplier effects, one person spends money that wasn't spent before and that someone else gets the money and they put some money into taxes and savings account and you have a multiplier effect of 80 cents of the previous or 70 cents of the dollar spent gets re-spent. So you get multiplier effects for the economy. So 44 billion might translate, if, it, if it's a maximum uh, of five, which is about as high a multiplier effect as you get, that's five times 44 billion, so that's 200 billion approximately dollars added to the world economy. But still, for three billion dollars, three billion people, 200 billion comes out to well, a hundred dollars a person more than they would have had. Problem is, of course, is that spending includes costs. It doesn't all go to poor people. The multiplier effect can quickly go out of the hands of poor people. Um, in any event, the econometric studies of these, uh, the impact of these lending programs that have exploded in the last three decades seem to suggest an all too sad pattern of 
Yes, it's adding to the economy, but no, it's not reducing poverty. The analogy to the American situation for the last two and a half years is yes, we have recovery, but we have a jobless recovery. Unemployment rate now is something like 10%, maybe slightly less nationally, and roughly the same in Georgia. So that's two percentage points higher than when Obama took office, roughly 8%. Uh, before the crash of 2008, unemployment was something like 5 6%, and had been in, in the past 12 years or so, I think we did get down to 3% or 2%. Unemployment, which is the lowest in my lifetime. Why, in a recovery, don't, would you not get jobs being created? Um, well, first of all, the main reason is that the recovery is not exactly a recovery. I mean, it's a, technically, it's a recovery. Why? Well, if this is time, right? And each, this is time on the bottom axis. Each two consecutive quarters of decrease in GDP is the definition of a recession. I'm not sure what the definition of a depression is, but it's one of those things you know it when you see it. You said two consecutive decrease what? Quarters of GDP, GDP. decrease is the definition of an in recession. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, two consecutive quarters of positive growth is the end of the recession. But if this is you know, GDP going down, um, and then the improvement is much, you know, it's just barely positive, but it lasts for two quarters. You know, you're slightly above the, the nadir, the low point. But look at this, GD, total GDP is way below what it was. So yes, we've had improvement for two quarters, but no, the real state of the economy is far worse than what it was two or three years ago in this particular example since the crash of 2008. And in addition to that, you know, it's quite possible that employers will put their money into holding cash in case they, they don't have confidence that the economy will improve. They'll hold on to their cash so they can pay their bills in the future if they don't expect to get the revenues from the sales of their goods and services that would cover their expenses. Employers may not hire people because they think what they really need to do is get uh, a good machine. They might spend their money on capital, in other words, if they're going to spend it. They might spend it on advertising. They might spend it on paying off their debts. Because if the economy has going, been going downhill for a couple of quarters, their revenues have been decreasing, they may have quite a few debts to pay off, either directly to the creditors or in short-term loans to the banks for short-term short lending to pay off bills. So they may owe, them, they owe banks a whole lot of money. So, they may have a lot of cash, but they may have to you know, put first priority in paying off those kinds of bills. In the case of micro-lending, the other factor in terms of impact on employment or impact on uh, reducing poverty, first of all, begins with a conception of, call it, I don't know, monitoring mechanisms, right? You give a loan to some, to a seamstress to have buy a sewing machine for $25 or $50. And this, there's an anecdote in the chapter which says, well, some person spent it on health, emergency health care for a relative. Technically, that's possibly dishonest. Now, this, if you borrow money, I don't know about a car, but if you do a, a mortgage for a house loan in the, in the United States, you know, the bank uh, who's making the loan you know, will pay the money 
uh, directly to the, the buyer. Otherwise, you don't, unless you hand that check over, and unless the check clears, you don't get title of the property. And of course, it goes to the property. And then the bank, I believe, also owns, at least has all the information and whatnot to claim the property if there's non-payment after a certain number of missed payments. You know, then foreclosure proceedings begin, and more or less banks get get those according to the law once, once the amount of time has passed and so forth. I know the laws changed in the last couple of years as a result of the crash of 2008. And I think there's some you know, extra time and extra required negotiations for refinancing or renegotiating the rates and so forth. Generally speaking, if the bank thinks you, know, you can repay the loan, then the bank will obviously rather have you repay it and stretch out the time. If you're, they eventually get all their money, that's all they really care about. If the bank has to sell, you know, most of the time they don't cover their loan and cover the losses because of transaction costs, time when they're not getting the lending, and so forth. Now, you know, generally in, in individual circumstances, there are three ways people can get bankrupt, just like there are ways states can get bankrupt, just like there are ways that borrowers, poor borrowers, can go bankrupt. So in addition to whatever impact it may have or not have on poverty, uh, it's also possible that these loans at the micro level, just like the loans in rich countries, perhaps not to the, the most creditworthy buyers, but still just in all these circumstances, you can't repay the loan. In the case of individuals, three major factors are unemployment, divorce, and health bills that are not covered by insurance. Divorce, you get, you're paying for two residences, whereas before you're paying for one. Health bills, if you don't have the insurance, you know, it can be extraordinarily expensive. Uh, and unemployment, obviously, if you don't have a job, you don't have your income, and you can't pay off the mortgage. And if you have two of those three things, you can almost probably bankruptcy is a certainty. Some people get divorced, you know, they have plenty of money. They sell the house and they don't have to declare bankruptcy. And they, they may down, you know, downgrade the quality of their neighborhood or the size of their home or what have you. But, you know, they, they don't go bankrupt. But, you know, a percentage of the people, you know, they, they live in a humble house and there's nowhere to go. At the level of states, here we are in Georgia. I, if I have the figures correctly, two years ago, could someone shut that door, please? Thank you very much, sir. Um, two years ago, we had something like $10 billion in state budget, and Georgia, like New York, is one of those states where a deficit is not allowed, whereas California, I think the deficit, which is allowed, is larger than the budget of the entire state of Georgia. Um, but it was $10 billion two years ago or so, last year, no, just last year was $10 billion. And this year, we only have $8 billion coming in between the continued decrease in the economy and the stimulus money that used to come in last year is not coming in from the federal government because that, that money has run out. And so the HOPE scholarship is just the tip of the iceberg. The problems of Georgia as a state are enormous. And I guess if Georgia reduces expenditures to $8 billion, and, and that can be done without any legal entitlements getting in the way, because some percentage of that aid building they can't cut, because I guess it's mandated by federal programs like Medicaid, for example, although there is some discretion on eligibility for Medicaid, for example, to cut down costs. But they cut down state aid to, to Georgia universities, 
in general, and so uh, tuition has to go up, uh, faculty salaries go down. Um, there's a modest inflation now, a couple of percentage points, so those, those costs will go up, but you've got to, and so on and so forth. In the case of these poor borrowers and micro-lending programs, the problem is um, even if everybody who borrowed the money does an excellent job using the money for what it's designed to do, there may not be enough other poor people in the neighborhood to buy the good or service. And you know, when you're talking about people who are very, very poor, they don't have much cash. You know, they're earning $100 a year maybe for the entire family. And you know, there might be one seamstress per barrio or a poor neighborhood around the entire country. Once you got two, there are not enough people out there who's got enough disposable income to pay for sewing. They just sew themselves. Or they don't sew their holes. They just walk around with, and so forth. And generally, in the informal economy, people, whatever cash they have, they, they're paying for absolute necessities. Maybe a, a luxury is some cooking oil or buying some rice um, and so forth. So. You know, there's not, these are not cash-rich rich areas. I mean, obviously, you always see stories of <coughs> smugglers and arms traders, uh, drug dealers who, who have a lot of cash and a lot of money, but that, doesn't, that isn't true of most of the people. And those guys probably don't even use seamstresses. They just buy new clothes, I guess, if the movies are any indication of reality. Um, so, you know, the number of people in the developing world who have no loans or very few loans is, is, is quite high. Um, or there's no data on them having any loans uh, at all. Certainly, it's no accident that Libya now is the setting of, a, of combat because it is a very poor tribal political economy without uh, much of an urban sector, without much sophistication outside those with cronyist and patronage linkages to the Gaddafi regime and so forth. And so a place like Libya is not going to have a lot of these credit windows because they don't have the institutions you know, to regulate them to make sure that they don't steal money. They don't have um, laws pretend, protecting against fraud. They don't have any rules about usury. And in fact, in most Muslim countries, or many, in Sharia law, for those countries that have Sharia law among the Muslim countries, interest is illegal and they have to come up with some kind of Muslim bank bartering system. Now, not every Muslim country has Sharia law. Uh, for example, Muhammad Yunus, who is prominently featured in this ch first chapter, uh, got the Nobel Peace Prize for the uh, bank that he established in Bangladesh. I don't believe they have Sharia law in Bangladesh, like they do in Pakistan and they have some certain provinces of Nigeria, but not in all of them, since Nigeria is also partly Christian and also some of the Muslim area provinces. Muhammad Yunus in the Jameen Bank, I think it's Grameen Bank, is the name of his banking institution. Then, you know, these poor borrowers, let's say, you know, they're working really hard. There are at least two reasons why they don't have much impact on the poverty rate in the country and why they may have trouble repaying. You know, let's say this, the sewing machine is great and it increases business. 
but depending on you know, what you're able to charge, you may only make enough money just to, every month to repay off the loan to give you the machine. So you're working really hard to stay in place. And in many ways, you have more risk because you've got to generate a certain amount of cash every month to pay off the loan. And then they come traipsing over to your house collecting cash. Why? Because they don't have checking accounts. The reason they have these microfinance windows in the first place is because you're not part of the formal economy. The bank won't give you a bank account. You don't have an ID. You don't have title to your property to prove that you have collateral for a mortgage, for your loan, etc., uh, etc. Et so um, obviously there are cases, lots of successful cases of individuals who do make a profit. And the repayment bit rate is extraordinary. The Grauman Bank historically was 98, 97%. It, it dipped in 2008 because the crash in the US affected the whole economy, including the situation in Bangladesh. Um, but you know, the fat, I mean, if you we were going to be a really big success, what are you going to do with this? You get a second selling machine, then you've got to create a company. Um, and that's in a situation in an area where companies have never hardly existed. And there's no lawyer just to regulate employee relations. So it's all done informally. So you buy two or three of these machines, and then you hire people, and you pay them by the piece, or you pay them a very low wage. But then you've got to generate even more business. And, and many people probably, if they are making a small profit, they're happy to stop because they don't want to have to deal with employees. They don't have space for employees. They're you know, dealing with a situation, since they're often women, uh, you know, having to take care of kids at the same time, and you know, maybe working on your sewing machine from time to time is something you can manage, but supervising other employees is really impossible. But you can't give the sewing machine away to your, the other person. You may never get it back, but having them around when you don't have space is not so easy. So it's very hard to understand why there's not a bigger impact on poverty. Um, it should be noticed also that uh, to be a business person requires literacy because you've got to keep books, right? If you're really going to expand a business, you've got to have a sense of how much money. You could, you could do it through intuition, I suppose. But uh, if you're going to grow, then you're going to have to get access to banks. And this has led some people to say that the problem actually is not, not necessarily the credit loans or even the way that people are harassed to pay very high interest rates in order to generate the kind of profits to the lenders that would justify in-person collections of repayments. The problem is lack of access to the formal economy. And in many of these countries, so argues Hernando de Soto, the Other Path was the name of his book. The Shining Path was the guerrilla Maoist group in Peru. And the Other Path was his famous book that said, what we need to do is create paperization. Paperization, I suppose that could be a good question for a, a test. Um, but the idea here is that you need ID, you need title to your land. And of course, especially when countries like Peru with a lot of squatters, they don't have titles. They don't have IDs necessarily, because the, sometimes the government hasn't gone through the problem of, of giving people IDs, or they get lost, and then you never get it replaced. It's too expensive. Um, 
And with squatters, you know, you have title to what? To a slum. And you know, there's certain neighborhoods that basically are redlined, I guess that's the term that's used in the United States for neighborhoods where they just don't make loans there. Or if they make loans, you know, it's at really high interest rates. <coughs> and these high interest rates, of course, make it much more expensive to, to, to take on the loans <coughs> and try to, you know, make a, a go at, at your business for being profitable. Um, this notion of redlining, <coughs> which is often illegal in some U.S. states and not in others, um, does raise the question of how uh, the mortgage crisis led to the enormous crisis of the world economy from 2008 all the way up to the present, but especially in 2008, where everybody feared the recession would turn into a depression. And there's this concept of moral hazard. which is a subset of something called perverse incentives. Anyone know what a moral hazard is? No one heard of that word? This would be a benefit from the government, or it could be from anyone for that matter. It has a very good intention, and actually achieves its good intention, but it leads to irrational activity. So, in the 19, yeah. He's gonna get the red line on that. That's circling with a red pen neighborhoods that the bank will either not lend to at all, or will only lend at really exorbitant high interest rates. The subprime loan market was sometimes considered to be part of redlining because they were charged such high interest rates. Junk bonds are bonds, low-grade bonds, corporations that, that have a so-called bad balance sheet, where there's a risk that they'd be so cash poor they won't be able to pay the interest rates on the, on the, the bonds that you buy. Um, proved to be a very profitable market beginning in the 1980s, whereas before, you know, bonds were something you took on as an alternative to stocks because there was no appreciation, or as far as I know, but you know, the interest rates were pretty high, much higher than for stocks. So it's a low-risk, low-return investment. And what uh, Michael, whatever his Milkins, created was <coughs> a high-risk, high-return uh, bond instrument that didn't exist again, it didn't exist, and because the 80s really were a boom time. A lot of these companies have poor balance sheets still managed to continue paying their interest rates. So if you did take the risk, you got a lot more interest rate. But a bond still is superior to a stock if it, in, in bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, I guess it's called you know, primary debt and secondary debt. So bank loans are the highest debt. They have to be paid off first. Uh, then bonds would have to be paid off. And then I guess preferred stock and finally common stock gets paid last. When you said, um, when you were talking about perverse incentive and redlining, is, um... Well, then, no, no, perverse incentive is not redlining. Oh, not redlining. I'm sorry, perverse incentive and, um... Moral hazard. More, yeah. You said that that, they're 
connected to one another, that's a branch of perversion sin, and you started to explain what it was. Um, yeah, and then I answered a question. So oh, okay. No, he's okay. Um, you said it's a it's good intentions, and then it leads to what? And is it where I, it leads? I, to I'm actually about to start to answer that because okay. I was I, I answered a question. But is it by? I knew you were going to say that. But is it by the borrowers or the funds? Like who is it? It's 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 a moral hazard for the economy. It's probably a moral hazard for both. But the idea here is that um, the government involved, people who oppose government regulation say markets naturally self-regulate. And most of the time, the functioning economy does self-regulate. That is, supply and demand clear at some price. And the price reaches equilibrium. I mean, the price is relatively stable because there's X number of consumers who want to buy Y number of goods and services at a, at a certain price. And if demand goes up, the price goes up. If supply goes up, the price goes down. And then at the new price, the, the market will clear and, and they'll reach a new price equilibrium, which a, a different amount of goods and services will be provided at that price, depending on where the demand and supply curves cross. If you haven't studied economics, that really matter, but that's the basic idea. But those who think that the market is not na naturally self-regulating would point to a lot of crises in world history where the economy has not done well. One of those is bubbles. There was the bubble of the flower market uh, in the Netherlands, where I guess the Netherlands, between cycling, marijuana, uh, Free or not free prostitution, legal prostitution, and and ice skating and cycling. The Netherlands is famous, so they used to make tulips, right? Or maybe they still do, except they're not the only. So they once in the world they had world famous tulips, and tulips commanded a nice price. And I guess people were investing in Ford markets or futures markets, which is the same thing. Ford contract in the futures market. Uh, for tulips, and the price of a tulip got so inflated because everybody figured the price would go up that it became the equivalent, you know, the price of a 25 Cadillacs or something. You know, this was ridiculous how much it got inflated. But as long as everybody believes the price is going to keep going up, it's a rational thing to invest in something where the price is ridiculously high as long as you can sell it at that price, at a higher price. So we have. You know, Japan had a horrible real estate bubble burst around 1990, and many people say they've never recovered compared to the boom times that the Japanese economy had from World War II up to that point where they had the fastest growing and then developed economy in the world, and until China surpassed it recently, it was the second largest economy in the world. Still 30, bad for a relative smallish country. But you know their economy is stagnated at one or two percent. I don't think per capita incomes have gone up, and you know even Toyota. I never thought I'd live to see the day where Toyota had problems. And somebody said to me that that brake thing actually wasn't true; it was just a, all made up. I don't know. Anyone hear anything about? Was it true? I heard the saying the, the gas pedal, right? Means yeah, the, that was all made up. No, I heard I heard the saying that, that it was made up just to kind of. Yeah, I don't know. I, somehow it seems hard to believe that 
Toyota would just say, show me it doesn't work or something. But they would immediately worry about the reputation and recall all these cars. And I think there were one or two cases where it happened, but it might have just been the driver. Yeah. Instead of putting your foot on the brake, I particularly, I was taught in driver's ed, oh my god, 40 years ago. Uh, more than 40 years ago now. Um, that, you know, you're, in the old days, you know, you'd, you'd always use your, your, your right foot on the clutch, uh, on the brake and the accelerator and move back and forth because you need your left foot to put down the clutch. Right, but you're not supposed to put your left foot on the brake ever because if you have them both, you might push on both. So you, you, you do one or the other. And in the old days with the clutch, you know, you just kept the left foot on the clutch because you always have to shift. But if you don't have a I don't know, do they cars with clutches that aren't? Of course. But only if it's a fancy car, right? No, I mean, they're still You can buy a car with a clutch? I have one of the buttons. Okay. I haven't drawn a clutch in a long time, but anyway. Um, and I always enjoyed it, too. It gave me something to do. All right. <laughs> I, mean, I guess you could accelerate faster, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't guzzle as much gas? Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know why they don't still make them. I had the hardest time finding one. They're like, what are you looking for? Like a bubble, blah, 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 clutch, or stick, or five-piece? They're like, are you sure? And I was like, yes. Like, I mean, I, I, if only for gas, if it does say 15% gas it consumption, You'd think, you'd think that for national security reasons. <laughs> All right. I know. To reduce consumption. Be, they should require. Or just put a tax on, on automatic. You can have <laughs> automatic, you're going to have to pay a thousand bucks tax. They're more expensive automatic. They are more expensive, but that doesn't, you know, I don't know how much more. People don't worry about that kind of thing. Um, but I'm also amazed that, you know, when I have, what is it, overdrive? Then the gasoline just dis disappears. Um, and I couldn't figure out since I have an 87 car how to, which button to push to <laughs> take the overdrive off. Um, okay, so the bubble that we had in 2008 was caused by real estate. The bubble we had on Wall Street and stock market uh, in the 80s and in the 90s. It, particularly around 1999, 2000, 2001, I think the stock market bubble peaked, was you know, it, it's fed by two phenomena, expectations that everything will continue to go up, so it's a rational investment, and then highly leveraged investments. Just like the crash of 1929 occurred in large part because of a bubble that was fed by people who were only required to put down 10% of whatever they were buying. And I thought that the Great Depression had ended that practice. But what we've had recently is a lot of high return investments, very high risk investments, where you couldn't put down 10% on the dollar on the stock market, but a bank would lend you the money to do it. Or even worse, the banks were doing the investing on a leveraged basis. The Glass-Steagall Act during the Great Depression was designed to protect deposits of average people by saying uh, no one can make commercial loans for real estate and cars and household other issues unless uh, it's a commercial bank. And commercial banks were subjected to much more careful and detailed regulations to make sure there's no fraud, misrepresentation, 
to make sure that the minimum deposit accounts are, are present, which would have been on the order of at least 10 or 15 percent, uh, and so forth. Whereas investment banks, which uh, don't take demand deposits, or didn't anyway, um, were only allowed to underwrite high-risk investments in which there was less protection, but the possibility of higher returns. But it was not the sort of thing that the masses of people would put their savings in because the masses of people, you know, if they're going to, they don't have enough money to buy stocks and bonds. They just need to have a couple of grand, you know, for when they have a, a bad week or bad year or, or unexpected expenses or any of those three things I mentioned, divorce, health bills, or unemployment. Um, the Glass-Steagall Act turned out to be a really good thing in the end because what we had was investments that spread throughout the entire economy, not just stocks and bonds, although it was a particular kind of stock security that may have caused the entire crash of 2008. Um, but you had that kind of stock being invested on margin by the investment banks themselves, or they were creating the security and, sell and underwriting it, that is, buying the first batch of it and then reselling it to the public at large. Uh, at slightly a higher price in order to make a profit off of it. What was so scandalous about these would, and these are called collateralized debt obligations, CDOs, was that um, it was supposed to provide diversification and risk reduction because you would be bundling together lots of securities. But the problem was the bundled securities were all repurchase mortgages of high-risk loans to uh, uncreditworthy buyers uh, who were given subprime loans, that is, loans for subprime buyers at more than prime rate interest rates. So what you had was a concentration of risks of all of these high-risk loans put into one type of security and people bet institutional firms going like crazy and buying these things. Now, you, how could just one kind of instrument be so devastating? Well, the problem is it was linked to several different failures in the economy. Um, and these were created by these moral hazards. First, the bank makes the loan to a borrower. In the good old days, I'm lending money of your deposits. I know I have to pay you an interest rate. Therefore, I'm going to be very careful what the economists have to say. I'm going to be an efficient allocator of capital, which is a scarce resource, to make sure that you're going to repay my loan so I can pay back your loan to me. That is your deposit in your savings account or your checking account plus the interest rate. But because there was a run on the banks in the Great Depression, what did the US government do? It created a moral hazard by guaranteeing, I don't know what it was originally, but in recent years, prior to the 2008 crash, the first $100,000 of savings. I don't know many people put $100,000, but I guess if you're really rich, 100000 is nothing compared to $50 million in stocks and bonds. But in any event, for the you know, very few people have more than $100,000 in cash, but that means basically a very high percentage of all the cash that banks take in in deposits 
they have a moral hazard because now if a loan is not repaid and they can't repay you on your deposit when you want to withdraw, the FDIC comes in and pays off the borrower. Now, it's not <coughs> quite that bad because the FDIC has the right to take over your bank. So if you default on enough of these bonds, sorry, on enough of these loan deposit payments, the bank can close you overnight. And this is a state enterprise. It's a very effective government enterprise. But then there were two other developments that happened. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. How many of you have heard of that? Uh, federal home loan mortgage. I don't know what the, which is May and which is Mac. But in any event, what they both do is buy the loans from the banks right after they contract for the mortgage right after meaning within a year. We got to the point in the last few years prior to the crash where 90 to 95% of the banks in America resold, that is, they didn't refinance, what's it called? Repackaged, anyway, they, all the banks became were processing machines where they process a mortgage and then Freddie Mae Fannie Mac, or whatever it is, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, get it mixed up, uh, would buy the loan and then it's, I'm off, I'm scot-free. I've already got my money. Now it's true, I don't make as much money, but I have a zero risk business. And since there's so many loans out there to be made, and many new loans to be made in the subprime market, I just keep making mortgages. Plus, with the decrease in interest rates, there was also the refinance mortgage, you know, every time mortgage rate drops two points, you know, it was in the late 70s, mortgages were 16, 18% because inflation was double digits. So from 16 to 14, or 13%, you could refinance those. 13 to 10, you could refinance those. 10 to 8, refinance those. 8 to 6, refinance those. And then interest rates got down to below four and a quarter. So as long as you had an interest mortgage rate at 6%, it still paid for you to refinance. And because you know it gets closer together, maybe you only need a point and a half at that point. What were Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac designed to do? They were designed by the federal government to encourage home ownership. Okay. So the, if you believe home ownership is a good thing that ought to be subsidized by the government, it basically became a form of loan guarantee. A loan guarantee, by definition, is a moral hazard. Right. Because then, if I, as the lender, don't have, have a risk-free investment, I don't have to exercise any prudence or rationality on who I give it to. You know, everything is peace and love, man, and you know, we all get loans, and we all, we all pay them back. Well, no, we don't all pay them back. Capitalism is a pretty rough system for, for on the business side, on the supply side, it's what Schumpeter called the process of creative destruction. If your banks are, uh, sorry, companies are supposed to go out of business in order to have more competitive companies' inventions get tested on the market. Even though, whatever it is, four out of five new businesses fail within five years, and four out of five products fail within, you know, in their, in their early going on, but like the 20 paintings in the art gallery, the one that makes it big pays for all the ones that lose. 
and the one blockbuster book that a company publishes pays for all the others that break even and lose money. Anyway, uh, as it is, you're just trying to get you know one in five, one in ten to do very, very well for this process to work in an efficient sense. But if you're just lending to everybody, the number of people who are going to suddenly you know blossom and boom and so forth are not going to come forward because there is a point of diminishing returns. You, I look like you're asking. Um, then, on top of Franny May and Freddie Mac, they were selling these CDOs to Wall Street, you know, repackaging all their loans. Franny May and Freddie Mac were yeah. selling them. And, and also, banks were doing it directly because they would get a higher price from the investment banks than would get from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And so they would package these. First of all, they were, they were mutual funds of these securities. And these collateralized debt obligations were packages of many mutual funds. And I guess you know, the idea is like in, you know, more diversification, the better. So like in venture capital, it's very high risk, right? Same principle. One company will be a Google or a Microsoft or Facebook or what have you. And that will pay for the other 25 ventures you invested in that 23 of them broke even and two which lost money or whatever the deal is. And it almost doesn't matter if a lot of them lose money because with Facebook, you know, if you own 15% of Facebook and Facebook is now worth $50 billion, you know, that's five or six billion or something, whatever it is. You know, it's a lot of money. And all you did was invest and sort of go to annual meetings and make sure things are progressing appropriately. The problem here was that these were all bad loans. And what distinguished one group of bad loans from another group of bad loans was not any ones that are doing well. It's, you know, the best of them were having default rates of 20%, and the worst of them had 50% default rates. And so the investors in the, whether they're hedge funds or investment banks or pension funds, or mom and pop people, they basically lost at least half of their investment. And as far as the banks were concerned, with their real estate going belly up, the FDIC was foreclosing on the banks and taking them over, so those banks went under. Um, by the way, there was also a saving and loan scandal in the late 80s, which was the same type of phenomenon where the banks were fraudulently making loans to uncreditworthy buyers. And I think John McCain, among others, were, were implicated in that, although he was never convicted of a crime. Um, there were four or five congressmen who pro allegedly protected a bunch of these banks that were involved in this stuff. And you know, so the regulations are required. The regulations are almost even more necessary than normal to make sure that uh, this moral hazard doesn't get taken to its full implications. So, you know, there's certain required checks. Uh, I think every mortgage, certainly every mortgage has this, and I assume it's done not just for the bank, but probably by law. You have to have an independent ass uh, not assessment, evaluation, what's it called? Property assessment. Anyway, someone comes in and gives a market price in their house. 
and it's got to be done professionally. They take photographs. They they have a for, it's all done by formula and recent prices in the neighborhood and so forth. And you know, it, it, you can pretty much guess what it's going to be anyway, assuming the house and, and inspection of the house to make sure that the wood's not rotting, the foundation's not falling apart, and that you don't have termites and you don't have whatever else it is. Appraisal. It's appraisal. It's an appraisal, right? Thank you. Um, so that you need that, you know, the regulations in the past were, you know, that there's no fraud and misrepresentation. That's done through the legal system. And then there's a, a regulation, you know, you cannot lend out more than X percent of your total de demand deposits. And you have to be independently audited. And the auditors also are held to high standards of integrity. And the fact that the auditors are paid by you creates a perverse incentive. Or the fact that the bonds and the stocks and these collateralized debt obligations are assessed by Moody's, Standard and Poor, and other these evaluators, they're paid by the underwriter. Doesn't make any sense. Why, was, why should the underwriter determine the creditworthiness of the stocks, especially of the bonds? It's their interest to have the highest rating possible. So a lot of these banks got ratings of AAA, AA from these credit agencies, even with three or, actually there are about seven major credit agencies of five, I guess. But there's a big three, and I named two of them. I can't remember the, the name of the third. Now Jules Kroll, the guy who created, went from being a PI to you know, a major corporate investigator working for foreign governments. He's just started a firm with his son to compete with, I guess, Dow Jones, Moody's, and Standard & Poor's are the big three. On rating the valuations of bonds of major companies and stocks, because they, but he's still using the model of being paid by the underwriter as opposed to being paid by the stock, by the people who are buying the bonds. And the problem is an individual bondholder doesn't have enough money at stake to make sure, and, and, and they're naturally gonna diversify. But you, know, you, you could have like subscription services purchased by banks and make them available, by commercial banks, to, or I don't know exactly how you do it, but in any event, if there is no way of getting the buyers to pay for the appraisals of homes or the buyers of stocks and bonds to pay for the evaluations of creditworthiness of bonds and companies behind the bonds, then you're stuck with it. But the old days in Rome, I guess the, it was caveat emptor, the buyer beware. You know, you, you look at the goods, you look at the services, you inspect them yourself. When, the, when it's sold, that's it. Title transfers. If there's any fraud or misrepresentation, tough luck. But we don't do that in the modern world. We assume that there's inequality of buying power and bargaining power. Um, and not only that, the fine print that's inside the package when you buy a pharmaceutical it doesn't matter what it says to the extent that the government says, no matter what they say, there'll be absolute liability or, or, or liability certainly for malpractice and possibly for any harm caused at all. Now the problem, of course, here in the case of drugs is that the, the government you know, is the one that evaluates whether the drugs are safe through the FDA. And of course, they're under tremendous pressure to get these drugs approved because supposedly they're life-saving. 
and side effects aren't really tested out, and it's often the side effects that kill people, especially when you're taking multiple drugs and their interactions of the chemicals from different medicines. And I can tell you that very unhealthy people who may in some sense be, may be being helped by the drugs that they're taking, still the, the side effects of the other drugs may be what does them in when at a time of, of poor health. Whereas a healthy person, you know, doesn't don't have all those chemicals in their system. Um, and you know, you can, some of these psychological drugs can cause problems like kidney damage and stress on your kidneys, just to name one type of side effect. And also to rush the drug through, I think, um, you know, there are drugs that lower your cholesterol but actually increase your risk of heart disease. Because you know, what you're really trying to do is reduce heart disease. But since there's a high correlation between lowering cholesterol and lowering heart disease, it's assumed that you couldn't have the opposite effect. But that's what's happened, as it turns out. I have a friend that takes um, cholesterol-reducing drug. What's the most famous one? Lipitor. Lipitor. Thank you. You watch the commercials? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lipitor. And I think for most people, Lipitor has been a real godsend. I mean, if you stopped eating animal fats, you probably don't need Lipitor, but most of us like to eat a little meat or butter or what have you. And so we take Lipitor, and for most people, there's no major side effects, but there are a couple of people where the just it's going to cause terrible problems. And then, you know, you're going to have to sue in court to prove it. And even with a class action suit, you know, there's, it may be unprecedented. The company's going to say there was no documentation of that. And then when the marketing salesman comes to sell, um, you know, a doctor says to, to the salesman, you know, I, all my patients have this strange side effect. And all the marketing salesmen are, sometimes instructed by the pharmaceutical companies say, you're kidding, I never heard of that before. And they may hear about it every afternoon. But they're supposed to you know, play dumb as if none of this ever happens. So these regulations are really designed to focus on consumer protection on the one hand and fair competition on the other. And how to get in a situation where the economy doesn't crash like this. First of all, as a general rule, regulation is expensive. There's a lot of paperwork involved. And even if you agree that regulation is necessary because markets fail, because you have the need for public goods, still, you have all this paperwork. You have a lot of reporting authorities. The more reporting authorities and the more different authorities regulate you, the more time it takes and the more costly it is for a business person to do that kind of thing. And the, the book said that there were four major approaches to regulation from highly specialized to highly centralized. And then two middle ground positions of which the United States is sort of in the middle of both, functional and institutional. But the point of the matter is that uh, we have you know, a historical hodgepodge that has resulted from the historical institutional creation of different bodies based on particular historical problems. And we've also gone through waves of deregulation. So deregulation looked like a huge success with the deinstitutionalization of the Civil Aeronautics Board, the CAB, which used to regulate air prices. So airfares were all regulated. And it was very interesting that um, 
CAB only had authority to regulate interstate commerce or airfares across states. So the distance of an airplane from San Francisco to Los Angeles might be comparable to Phoenix to Austin or Chicago to New York or what have you. But because that was intrastate, it was not regulated, and the fare in the early 70s was $23. And the fare of the equivalent fare was like 200 something. Now, of course, fares are more. But so by deregulating, you got a lot of the, all these small airlines that immediately competed with the large airlines on price that had artificially high cost structures because they had you know, limited competition, few routes were sanctioned, and they were able to hire big prices. Now that also caused some problems because some of the small airlines didn't quite make it. Some of them were not necessarily safe. Uh, they also paid their employees a lot less which didn't win many fans in the larger employee unions for pilots and steward, air, air flight attendants and so forth. In the case of the economy, though, do you want to have a system where the bank has to fill out 40 reams of paperwork every time you qualify for a mortgage on the theory that you, you go up through this checklist, and if all the checklists are honestly pursued point by point, then you're not going to be making fraudulent loans to people that have no way of knowing what they're getting and not being able to pay them back. You know, most of us don't check the fine print. How many people have taken out a loan of some sort? Car loan? Did you read the whole thing? Um, well, I mean, I'm on the same credit Did you read the first one? Yes. You did? Yeah. My mortgage was about 100 pages of fine print. Is that fine? And I signed a lot of them off at the closing. And they just said, sign here, sign here. I, and I didn't get it. I guess I'm supposed to get a copy. I don't know if I got a copy or not. A better. Why do they do that, Marilyn? I'm telling things where they say, oh, here well, this because we have government regulation in Georgia and nationally, those are pretty much standard forms. Um, but you know, we take it on. I mean, you know, in Georgia, I know that uh, the bank, the lawyer who's present, including your own lawyer, can quickly become the lawyer for the bank if you don't pay. Which doesn't seem right. You hired them to process the paperwork. He or she is supposed to be working for you, but if you don't pay, they're working for the bank. But that's the deal, and I guess you get a cheaper price. I remember when we had our first mortgage, we only paid $500, which I thought was a really cheap price for a lawyer, because I assume lawyers always charge thousands for things. That's part of the closing cost. So, you know, because we have regulation, that I can, I mean, I, you can be sure that, you know, nobody would be making you sign all these things away if, if every contract could be non standardized. But still, in credit cards, for example, which are far less regulated, you, you're dumb not to read the fine print. Because what you may get 8% or 12%, but you miss one payment. And I mean, just because you forgot. Well, I had 12 or 18. Yeah, but suppose you forget. No, I know. I, I did read this. It wasn't that one. Yeah, you know, if you let's say, in many of these loans, you, you're one day late just because you forgot. And the bond credit's like, you're then your interest rate goes up. 
they can go to 25 and go to 45 and you can go crazy. You miss two payments, it can go up to 100% because now you're a higher credit risk. If they find out through credit checks that your total amount that you borrowed has gone up and you haven't missed a single payment, your credit card interest rate can double even though you haven't missed a single payment just because you're a they're a greater risk. And of course, that interest is not deductible either. And yet most Americans carry, an a oh, not most, the average American has $10,000 in credit on a credit card. I've been there, I know it's, and I'll live that extravagantly. But you know, between divorce, between unemployment, between health crises, between, yes, people spending a lot more than they earn on, on luxuries that they feel like they gotta have, like an iPhone, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, the, the truly, you know, for consumer goods, you should never borrow. A car is, is an investment if you're using it to drive to work. If a car is just for pleasure, you should never buy a car out of a loan. Yeah? I was just gonna say, I'm oh, sorry, I was gonna say, isn't that also because like the, the uh, way rate to pretty much the landscape, but the access to credit has increased you know, exponentially, so a lot of people Right, well, if you have a bubble in the real estate market, then that means banks are need, well, if there's a bubble, then banks themselves also believe these, the, credits, the credit is worth it. But what, among the things that happen in deregulation, first of all, it used to be only fixed rate loans. And by the way, it was 30 years, which was a, a big credit risk, but the federal government encouraged that kind of thing by having Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac buy 30-year loans. Before Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the standard maximum length for a house loan was the 15 years. Second thing, you always had to have 20% down, minimum. Why? I don't know if daddy and mommy gave you the 20%, that doesn't really prove you can repay, but that's just the rule of thumb. So the theory, in theory, that shows you're able to save. So if you don't require, you only require 5% down or nothing down, that increases the risk that you haven't proven a track record of savings ability, whether it's discipline or earning enough money. Third thing is they created floating interest rates. That way they hook you. Because when interest rates are low, it's only 4%. But if inflation or the interest rates go up, it goes up with the rate that that goes up. But also you have these built-in inflators of the interest rates that you're paying on an adjustable loan my word is never take an adjustable loan. It's worth the extra money you pay for a fixed rate. On average, you'll pay more for a fixed rate, but you get the certainty. And you know, you, you, certain things in life you just really can't predict, like unemployment, health, and divorce. And anything else I'm leaving out. Am I leaving you know, hit, hit by a car? And, and, and the other guy doesn't have insurance? It's things like that. Um, a disability, that's also health. So what we had was a situation where the federal government under Bush decided to protect the supply side, whereas under Obama they promoted the demand side. The TARP plan, T-A-A-R-P, was designed to give money to these banks basically by buying ownership of the banks 
in return for assuming the responsibility for all of these liabilities, which in the case of AIG, I think was the, the greatest, which had insured one office alone in London at AIG wiped out the whole company, insuring collateralized debt obligations of these pooled securities of subprime loans. Uh, and AIG got, if I'm not mistaken, $130 billion. And you know, they didn't save Lehman Brothers. They let Lehman Brothers go. They saved Goldman Sachs and other big firms. And when Lehman crashed, the economy crashed. And you know, Lehman's assets were not all that large, but it was one of the oldest investment banks, blue chip, high caliber people. Uh, I forgot what other investment bank was bought by Lehman, but another one of the famous ones also crashed. And between the two of them, that was enough for the stock market to go in half over a course of time, for unemployment to double uh, from lowest to highest, uh, and for you know, sheer panic that we were going to have a Great Depression. By stabilizing the financial system, we didn't have a run on banks. And we also kept these firms in business. And in a sense, the, the American public didn't lose money in the same way that lending money to Chrysler a couple of years ago proved to be profitable because Chrysler has repaid all of its loans as well. That's twice for Chrysler, because it also happened with Lee Iacocca. Right. Was it the 70s or 80s? It was the 80s. Right. And then recently, in the last two years, Chrysler has been able to turn a profit. Oh, no, sorry, not Chrysler, GM. GM. Chrysler a long time ago and GM this time. And Ford was always the weak, a weak sister, but Ford has actually been profitable. I'm not exactly sure why through all this time period. And then Obama, you know, basically through the stimulus package tried to increase aggregate demand for goods and services by getting the state governments to spend more money than they were actually taking in in tax revenue. Of course, that was also a deficit from the federal government to pay for these expenditures, which was covered by primarily Chinese but other foreign investors in treasury bonds, sometimes called T-bills. Um, and you have to, why do, why do you have to do that? After all, can't the federal government just print money? It does print money. If you don't have the capital to back it up, you do, all you're doing is increasing the money supply artificially, and that'll immediately translate. You know, if you double the price of money, the money will be worth half over a period of X number of months. So that's right, and and it typically accelerates into hyperinflation. Yeah. I was going to ask. You Texas said that Ben Bernanke um, was a student of the Great Depression. That's a PhD thesis. Right. Um, would you say that Obama's influenced uh, heavily by FDR? He I says he's influenced by Reagan. Right. Reagan said he was influenced by FDR. Right. And Reagan was a Democrat when he was a, when Reagan when Roosevelt was president. Right. But he became a Republican, obviously. Uh, do I? You asked me. If I thought Obama, Obama was influenced by FDR. By FDR's response to the Great Depression, and especially. Well, he didn't create a lot of new agencies. He did not have the federal government become a major employer itself at all. Right. There's no civilian conservation corps. There's no 
National Industrial Recovery Act to have massive regulation of business. He did re-regulate. By the way, that's one of his three achievements in terms of major legislation that you know, most of these achievements are regarded backfired politically. Healthcare being the most obvious. And what was the other one he did? <laughs> I can't even remember. The re-regulation of the banking sector, healthcare, and well, now it's Libya. Whether it's positive or negative remains to be seen. But there was some other. Did anyone know and remember? What was his major other major achievement? Oh, well, maybe he didn't have one. <laughs> um, I was just thinking, like, the stimulus package as a way of, of, of breaking FDR money. did engage in deficit spending and borrowed lots of money. And so in that sense, he's similar. That, that and we borrowed even more money in the World War II. In World War II, we were much more leveraged than we are even today. But I mean, is that, is that Obama's influence of FDR? Is that FDR's influence generally? Is it just accepted wisdom? I think you know he, he hasn't he hasn't done the Herbert Hoover approach. Right. That's clear. I mean, didn't say, oh, we got to balance the budget, uh, and he has increased the deficit to a way that seems almost scandalous. But it's in per capita terms, it's nothing compared to World War II. Right. It should be noted, of course, though, that we're not at as low a capacity. You know, percentage of utilization of, of available capital. World War II. I'm just guessing. You know. It, the Great Depression at its lowest might have been 20%. Prior to World War II, 50%. During the war, it's 100%, but it's all producing military right. goods. So in terms of what the factories are designed for, uh, you know, you're back at 50% in 1945, but because everybody's working, they quickly can convert to civilian production. And so it more than paid off that debt. But we're at a higher percentage of capacity now. I, I mean, it's historic lows for recent decades, but nothing compared to the Great Depression. Plus, you know, the, the economists debate over what, what was responsible for these calamities and what was responsible for solving them. Oddly enough, Bernanke, who's a Republican, who was a roommate of friends of mine in graduate school, and has amazing Krugman, Bernanke, these guys were all roommates. Really? Wow. Because uh, they're all class of 74, 75 undergraduate. Krugman wasn't this big liberal until relatively recently. Is that right? Yeah. He, was, he got his Nobel Economics Prize for international trade theory, which does not really have anything to do with American politics, at least not typically. Um, so, I think the answer to your question is that in trying to figure out what works, a combination of re-regulation, Keynesian spending, um, demand-side approaches has been what's been established. Roosevelt was a combination of supply-side and demand-side. More recently, supply-side has been tended to be associated with tax cuts. Bush did several rounds of tax cuts, including before. In fact, most of his tax cuts were before the crash. Um, and the theory is by cutting taxes, you leave more capital for the private sector to invest rather than for the government to use in expenditures. The uh, Obama approach is not working to reduce unemployment. It has impelled a recovery, 
but it's not a very vibrant, exciting recovery. Uh, he's in a very tough political environment because the domestic politics is more polarized and the media environment is so hostile that if you say anything, it's likely to be held against you in a kind of radical, vituperative way. So the re-regulation portion seems to be working. Uh, you know, there's been no other major calamity. All the investment banks are profitable and the commercial banks seem to be quite profitable where they were losing money hand over fist for a long time. But one reason they're profitable is, is that they're not making hardly any more loans now. Even at 4.25%, people won't do a 30-year or 15-year mortgage. Well, that's one of the things. And the reason, I guess, is because nobody's buying. Well, I was going to say, you know, they got into trouble by providing these loans that were that were too risky, right? Providing credit that wasn't deserved. And now, by the way, I should add, they're too cautious. There's kind of one extreme swung to the other. I should add that it's not just the poor people. The loans that were made to people were made in very wealthy neighborhoods to people who couldn't pay those huge prices. Why? For the three traditional reasons. Plus, when the economy crashed, some percentage of them had to sell, and their mortgages were underwater which means that the amount that they owed was higher than what the price, going price, asking price for the house is. What that means then is that with something like 20% of the mortgages in America currently underwater, those people can't sell. Because even if they could, could sell the house, they wouldn't get enough to cover their mortgage. And they still have to be paying for a mortgage on a house that they don't even get to live in. Uh, I think you know, this, the world economy now is much more globalized. The whole world got affected by our mistakes. And I'm really shocked, actually, that the whole world isn't a whole lot more ticked off at us. Wasn't that true in the Great Depression? Well, that was also partly the phenomenon of beggar thy neighbor, Adam Smith wrote about, where the Smoot-Hawley tariff here led to reciprocal retaliatory tariffs, duties, and quotas in other countries, so world trade stopped. So the demand for our goods evaporated, and our demand for their goods is evaporated. So that we don't have that situation thanks to the world trade regime. Um, but I am amazed in terms of global politics that more people aren't really angry at the United States because many of the countries in Europe and the United States are, are really badly off. Now, Europe has their own scandals, especially cooking the books in Egypt, uh, sorry, in Greece. Uh, and Spain and Portugal also being over-leveraged in their banking sectors. There was tremendous overbuilding in Ireland and Spain. They thought that you know, the real estate market would continue to go up. Ireland is actually much worse than anything that happened here. I think it's 800,000 houses built in Ireland. Or was it 80,000? In any event, you know, it, it was just phenomenal considering only 3 million people in Ireland. And you know, the country changed so rapidly from being like this traditional closed economy to this open economy where instead of exporting labor around the world, including the United States, Eastern European workers were going to Dublin and other parts of Ireland look, looking for good jobs. 
And everybody assumed that this would last forever. And with the bubble phenom phenomenon, Ireland basically has gone bankrupt. I'm not exactly sure why it hasn't produced the scandal that Greece has caused. But I think Greece is worse because it was actual fraud. Whereas I think Ireland was just a real estate bubble that had run amok. But what I want to conclude on is the idea that you know, the interconnections of the different economic relationships means that while we all grow together, we all fall together too. And this notion of the butterfly's wing getting blown in the wind in South Pacific causing a hailstorm in Northern Europe shows these interconnections. That you know, this chaos theory is that in ways that we don't even know all the connections, one little event here can lead to a ripple effect. I think Amelie, the opening scene, shows this. Uh, right, right sequence of events that are totally, if you follow that cult film. Is it a cult film or just a hit? Amelie? It's yeah. It's a uh, relatively obscure hit, I think. Probably. Obscure right. hit? Yeah, I'm not sure. It was like that one in the 70s and 80s about when the something go together. I forgot what it was called. but Anyway, um, so you know, it, it means a quick fix is not easy because you got to you got to fix. You can fix it here, but it's dependent also on fixes everywhere else. And the ripple effects of a lack of confidence leading to recession in one economy means that there's lower demand for imports for other countries' exports, and so that has a ripple effect there. Now, China has gone through this at six percent growth, so it was reduced from ten to six, but still six percent growth in the middle of a world recession is pretty phenomenal, considering most of its wealth comes from exports. So China really knows what it's doing. I don't know how long it's going to last. I don't know if their economy will crash. I don't know if they'll experience real estate bubbles. Certainly Shanghai, I'm sure, it's more expensive to live in Shanghai than it is downtown Fifth Avenue at this point. But until they have their crash and their bubble, or maybe they're smart and they're learning from us and not allowing bubbles to happen. That's one advantage of a communist system is that if you really don't give people the choice to be free to be to screw things up, and the government knows what they're doing, I guess they're showing that it can work. But again, most people don't think all good things last forever. So it, it's not good for us, for ch at least in economic terms, it's not good for us for China to go downhill. Politically, that's another story. That's a whole different set of theories and worries about political military and power and all of that. But at the, at the moment, if they stop buying our treasury bills, then we're in a whole heap of trouble. Okay, thank you, and I'll see you next week.